Hello, everybody. Welcome to another bounty episode of the Day Zero podcast. I'm Spectre with me is Z. Today, we have some interesting news that we'll get into, some controversial news on a Canada ban, which I'm sure some listening have probably heard about. Uh, we also have a Jenkins bug and uh, some clipboard-based vulnerabilities for Microsoft Whiteboard and uh, Meta. So, yeah, we'll start off with some news. Uh, so starting out, this is some news that we had uh, initially missed We'd meant to cover it last week, actually, and we'd kind of forgotten about it. But uh, there was some news with DEF CON. So DEF CON was at one point canceled, as the meme goes. Uh, it seems that Caesars Entertainment had dropped their deal with DEF CON. So for those who weren't aware, like DEF CON has had a deal with Caesars for quite a while. I think they might might call it out here, actually, somewhere. But yeah, they've had a deal with Caesars Entertainment for a while. That's why they've, uh, for the last couple of years, it's been in Caesars form. And before that, it was in the Caesars property hotels and casinos. So uh, yeah, that just kind of got dropped all of a sudden on them this year. So they were sort of scrambling for a venue. And they were able to get the Las Vegas Convention Center, which unfortunately is not as convenient. Like It's not really on the strip. It's a little bit further away. But it does mean that DEF CON is going to happen where, uh, you know, at one point it seemed like it might not. So kind of interesting news around DEF CON. There's going to be a fairly big shift from how it's been in years past where it's been on the strip. And I'm really curious on how it's going to go over with people who attend and how it's going to work with how many people go to DEF CON. Because I think we've talked before on the show about the fact that like the last few DEF CON conferences have had like 25 to 30,000 people attend them. And around the convention area where it's happening there is not a ton of like hotels or anything it's it's not like the strip where there's hotels literally right next to each other in series going down for like miles or whatever so yeah, like it isn't um i've pulled up the map here kind of showing it's specifically in the convention center west hall uh so kind of got one over here so there are like a couple of hotels like a Marriott, uh, the Seagull Select, uh, and like there's, there are some hotels kind of in the rough area of the building, but it's definitely not the same density as you have just down the strip with these, you know, towering hotels with thousands of rooms. Like none of these really seem like they're going to compete on that front, which means a lot of people I think are going to have to come, like, kind of travel in to the convention hall. Uh, it is closer, kind of on the uh, monorail, I think, is a little bit nearby. So, like, that's maybe a benefit in that you'll be able to stay further away. You won't be necessarily paying the same rates as you'd have on the strip, which definitely get bumped up when DEF CON's going on. Might be able to save, like, some money off that or something. But at the same time, having that hassle of needing to travel into the actual convention center, along with the fact that, like, you know, so much of what happens with DEF CON isn't in the convention center isn't the convention itself uh, yeah plenty happens there but it's also meeting up with people parties are generally at different hotels like you kind of lose that aspect where you know if you're staying at the con hotel you're probably pretty close to one of the hotels that, like parties were at or whatever you want to go to sometimes you're not there are some that are just a bit away on that so like there was always some travel involved but it definitely changes things i am kind of excited about the fact that it's a larger building and you know size has always been a problem uh, and you know we're adding like a decent chunk of space with this yeah i think they gained like eighty thousand square feet or something along those lines they they talk about the numbers somewhere in here yeah i think it's Let's see if we can uh, find it 
That might have been in the blog post, actually. We have the forum post up. But... No, they've oh, got yeah. a, so how they much say, space yeah. will we have. And they mentioned that the convention center will be about 800,000 square feet, whereas the Caesars Convention Center, I'm assuming they mean the Caesars Forum, was about 550,000. Yeah, so um, sorry, not 80,000. They're getting away 250,000. Though they say that, that you know you shouldn't do a direct comparison between square footage because with a convention, you know, there's... There's more to it than just raw square footage, but yeah. Well, I tried looking into this, though, a little bit, and it seems like the Las Vegas Convention Center is just a lot more of a big open space. They do have some areas of the rooms, as far as I can tell, that are, like, blocked off, but it's not the same sort of blocking that Caesars Forum has, where, like, it's largely all blocked off. Like, it does seem a lot more flexible. Yeah, it's flexible. like big hallways with auditoriums, basically. Yeah, like... The LVCC seems more flexible, so like I'm kind of hopeful that they'll be able to take advantage of that space, have more space, and it'll actually be a better experience. Because one thing that will be nice is if we're able to have, and I guess since it's only being held here, workshops and training are going to be held at one of the hotels, but like the main con is just being done here. Like So it will be nice to have everything together, like not needing to go travel you know, between all these different hotels when you want to go from one village to the other or something. I think that is going to be a net positive. And that's kind of an aspect I'm looking forward to with it, to be honest, because it's been quite a few years since everything was all under one roof. Yeah. The biggest problem for me is the fact that, like like you said, you do have to kind of commute to the venue. And DEF CON is kind of unique from a, a lot of other conferences. I was kind of talking to some people about this so one is the fact that you really don't want to be commuting anywhere in vegas in the summer uh it's not fun being outside in that for long periods of time at least in the daytime so you are pretty much going to have to take like the monorail or the bus or or taxiing which hopefully the streets aren't as bad as they were last year because if they were forget about it you're not going anywhere uh the monorail would be the only option so yeah i drove yeah, the, last year a bit that was that was not fun <laughs> at all like because i've driven I most times yeah most of the time that i've come to defcon i have driven out and most years it's actually a decent driving around vegas like it's really not that bad like you know even down the where, strip where you have the pedestrian bridges like it's it's a lot better with that sense you don't have people crossing the street directly you have them crossing over so driving in it isn't the worst Although the traffic down the sh in that area is pretty busy, too. It's busy, but the out. roads are good for it, too. Like, it's wide lanes and all of that. So, like, it's really not that bad. Hmm. But with the construction, it was absolutely terrible. Yeah, it was down to, like, one lane each way or something at one point on, uh, on the strip. I think it was brutal. But, yeah, I think that should all be done for this year. So maybe it won't be as much of a problem for taking, like, a taxi or something. But like you said, it does kind of conflict because like what i like to do at defcon and what a lot of people like to do is meet up at like bars and stuff like that and go out and do stuff at the convention center it's it's not really that easy it's not really like it's um you know a typical convention where like you go in early in the day you stay there the whole day and then you come back like generally you're moving around a lot and doing different things with defcon right and something i hadn't thought about until you were talking i'm wondering how the ctf will will run because like a lot of the CTF teams that compete in DEF CON, they will book a hotel room where the conference is being held at. And, you know, where like, so you, you have, have the being at the, 
Yeah, so, like, I don't know if they're going to try to get the CTF teams to go to the convention center, and if so, like, I don't think they're going to vibe with that. I think they, like, the CTS teams kind of like what they have with their hotel setups. So I don't know how that's going to work. It's going to be kind of interesting. Yeah, it'll probably change the dynamic a bit there. Like, if I imagine if they are at a further hotel, it's just going to make, like, the job of the runner a bit more important in terms of making sure they don't have to accidentally go back and get more or something. Like, I yeah. get more information, like really kind of optimizing that travel time. But, um, which is not like I... a fun aspect of CTFing, to be fair. <laughs> like, <laughs> adding logistical challenge is not really uh, fun. Yeah. I will say, like, I just pulled up the hotel that DEF CON has a room block in. That is worth noting that, like, DEF CON does have a room block at the Sahara Hotel. And I was just curious how far away that would be from the convention center. And interestingly, on the little map that they have of, like, where the convention center is, it's far enough away that it's not even on their overview map of it. It's just a little oh. bit off screen, but it's a little bit further north. Um, but sucks. it does, one benefit, though, is it does look like it's the Sahara, which has a monorail station for itself. And so, you know, it's on the monorail, a couple stops down to get to the one nearest the convention center, and then a bit of a walk. So, yeah, which again, like I said, like you don't really want to be doing that a lot in, uh, you know, 90 or 100 degree weather. <laughs> so. No, th there are some other um, hotels a little bit closer, but yeah, I mean, the but they're like two star hotels. And again, like I'm saying with the, the Marriott's scale, are generally so pretty nice. OK, but yeah, those are a lot more expensive, too. <laughs> like part of the nice thing with going to DEFCON was having the hotels being close and really cheap. Like a lot of the time you could get rooms for like under a hundred bucks a night. Whereas when you're getting to like the Marriott and stuff, that's very much not the case. Um, and then of course you've got the issue of scale where it's like you have 30,000 people like that. Uh, you're not it's really going to accommodate push that rates. in two or three hotels. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's going to push the rates up. I think in the area, one kind of interesting aspect is that the convention center does actually have a food court. Um, kind of a small thing to make mention of, but like, you know, it, it's just going to be a different dynamic, I think, when you consider the fact that like, yeah, we're talking about everywhere else you have to go. But at the same time, it is we have a loss that is going to be very centralized to the convention. So maybe some aspects will change. You know, maybe it won't be what let's meet up at you know, Chipotle down the street or something, but let's meet up at like the you know, food court or whatever. I'm not sure exactly what that food court's going to look like, but I have seen mention of there kind of being actual dining options nearby. Though in fairness, in the hotels, there have always been dining options too, but, and so it might even be seen as a step down, I guess, from uh, some of the restaurants in the area. Either way, it'll definitely change the dynamic of the conference, I think. I'm hoping for the better with more space and everything, but, you know, we'll have to find out. Yeah, so of course, like, this is not ideal for the DEF CON organizers. Like, this was kind of dropped on them and they had to make the best of it. So, you know, they have a hopeful outlook that they're focusing on the positives. Of course, there will be some negatives. Some things will be lost. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the dynamic changes and how people accommodate to it. Uh, with being more centralized to a convention center like this, I guess it, you can think of it almost more like uh, CCC and how it'll run. It'll be more typical to like some other conferences as opposed to DEF CON where it's always had that like decentralized feel of it. It'll kind of lose that uniqueness, I guess, if that 
continues going forward because that's that's the interesting question too is like if this goes well then i assume it probably will be they'll continue doing this in years to continue so yeah it's it's fairly big news we don't know everything that's how like how everything's going to play out neither do the defcon organizers they have kind of an faq here talking about various things like one thing is defcon tv which is something we've praised in the past too it's it's really cool with DC TV. Like you can, if you're in the hotel rooms that were, uh, you know, with Caesars, you could flip to a channel and watch a talk without physically going there, which was really cool. Sometimes you could just be chilling or doing whatever, getting ready to meet up with some people or whatever, and just catch a bit of a talk. You might not be able to do that anymore. They say they are like looking into seeing if that could be viable, but because each hotel has different infrastructure and such, they're just not sure if they're going to be able to do that. So. Yeah, there's a lot of questions, and like you said, it's going to change the dynamic. It's going to be interesting to see, but it almost like flew under the radar. Like I didn't really see anybody talking about this because I was a little late to this post. I think I'd seen it a couple days after it was posted, and I didn't really see anyone talking about it. So I'm not sure how many people are aware of the fact that this change is happening. Oh, I definitely uh, saw it, plays... it all over social media. Um, Did you? Like, okay, maybe with, it just pretty quickly. Radar, yeah. Yeah, I saw it a lot. In terms of transport, I didn't notice before, but they actually call out, how do I get to the LVCC? And they mention doing a taxi. So they don't even mention the monorail. So perhaps not running. Perhaps there's another reason for that. Bit of a walk, whatever. But yeah, oh, they I thought they call had a... The... I thought they mentioned the monorail somewhere, actually. Oh, they do. They do mention, just not in how do I get there. But yeah, if you control oh, that okay. for it, they mention the monorail. So fair yeah. enough. I think the monorail will be the best option. The only thing that kind of sucks with it is you're kind of limited to that side of the strip, right? Um, because you don't really want to be at Caesar's Palace or something and then have to go across over to Harrison Lake to go on the monorail. Like, it's adding more hassle to your trip. So, you know, it's forcing you more into a smaller subsection of hotels, I feel like, if you want to attend DEF CON. Like, before, like... A lot of hotels on the strip or even near the strip were options uh if you were able to like walk a little bit but now i think you're you're being forced into a smaller selection which kind of sucks but you know it is what it is i guess something that i will call out too that uh i think is noteworthy is the fact that the the, the las vegas convention center also has different policies primarily with the smoking policy they call out smoking is not allowed on the LVCC property, the existing outdoor terraces, or any balconies. Marijuana and tobacco, tobacco vaping is 100% prohibited. And they have officers with canines on site trained for smelling that. Uh, which, again, is going to be kind of a cultural hit on DEF CON, because I know a lot of people who go there do like to smoke or vape. I know some CTF players and stuff like vaping is fairly common in that sort of, uh, in, in a lot of those circles. So... That could be an interesting aspect, too, with maybe being more of a professional setting, you know, not as loose and uh, tolerant of DEF CON's culture, I guess. That could be another thing that, that shifts the, uh, you know, the conference and the way it feels pretty significantly, too. Yeah, like with so many things, it's things are going to change due to this. Um, yeah. They do call out, though, like... you. The smoking is allowed in the parking lots and sidewalks. So it sounds like, you know, as long as you're leaving the building, you can still smoke, which is more of an ask, but like you just, you can do so on like the terrace or balconies. That's at least what I'm kind of reading from this, but 
yeah, it's not really something I tend to think about because that's not really something I do, I guess. So yeah, there there will be a fair amount of changes, but like you said, there could be some stuff that comes out for the better too. We'll just have to wait and see, but it's sort of an end of an era, I guess. Uh, you know, Defcon's been running sort of casually and not centralized to a convention center that's a distance away for, you know, ever. So yeah, I, I think they've always been attached to a hotel. Like yeah. I mean, as as far back as I've attended, they have been, and as far back as I can remember, they have. And I know, like, DC1 was at a hotel yet, so, like, as yeah. far as I'm aware, it's always kind of been that, and this is their first time actually doing a convention center, so yeah, very much an end of an era. Yeah. All right, so getting into some other news. So this is the controversial topic that I mentioned, and it is the fact that uh, the government of Canada seems to be wanting to move forward on banning the Flipper Zero, as well as potentially other devices, which uh, was pretty worrying to see, and really, it's it's just really stupid. Um, so the idea to me of banning Flipper Zero, fine. Like, so to to be very clear, when I say fine, like I don't agree with this. But it's more concerning to me that they're also talking about avenues to ban devices used to steal vehicles by copying wireless signals for remote keyless entry. So there's kind of two things. One, every vehicle sold since 2007 needs to have an immobilizer. That means if you don't have the key, the engine will not start. If you don't have the correct key, which means just like stealing vehicles through the remote key through like bypassing the keyless entry. It's more than just unlocking the car. Yeah, yeah, but that's all they call out, at least in this. There are some questions over what the official kind of statement is here, how deep this goes. Um, we were kind of talking about before the podcast, but, you know, this just talks about, like, we plan to do these things, so it's unclear to me, at least, what the results will be. We're just kind of going with what the clear intent is, which is banning the Flipper Zero, banning all of these things, and, like, kind of your worst-case scenario of that. But it just talks about anything able to copy the wireless signal. So one, I don't think focusing on remote keyless entry really is the important thing because that doesn't like, sure it has an impact on it, but like, that's not most of what you see on like social media with a flipper is very kind of showy for being able to open vehicles, but they kind of take a very specific scenario to work where you have to capture the signal before it's getting used, whereas most of the time somebody's going to hit their fob while they're actively trying to use it and unlock the vehicle when they're in range for it. Though there are other attacks, what was a roll jam or whatever that goes on, and then a few years back, or probably not that long actually, a couple years back, Rolling Pone, and I think there so, was another thing, but sorry, go ahead. So I do want to get into some background here because some people from other countries have been talking and asking about why this is even becoming a thing so like z and i are in canada and auto thefts in canada have been a real problem um that has been rising especially in my province of ontario it's it's been huge the amount of cars that have been stolen and exported uh, there's ties to like organized crime and stuff there and because it's become such a big problem that's why the government of canada organized the summit which this ultimately came out of but really it's uh it's pretty insane that they're going after the Flipper Zero and stuff here because it really is just getting scapegoated. Basically, all the Flipper Zero is is a repeater, right? So, well, it's, any vehicle it's more that's than in that, okay. But like for intent, like for the intents of this attack, 
that is basically what it's doing. You're capturing the code, you're replaying it. But replay attacks like that have not been able to work on vehicles in a long time. I mean, Flipper Zero kind of made a 2022. Replay attacks still work because vehicle fobs still absolutely will use rolling code systems. Uh, you can do it with the Flipper Zero. The main consideration here is you can do the attack. It's just the easiest way to pull off this attack would be if you can also jam the attack. That would actually make it practical. And that was the uh, rule jam, I believe the attack was called. Uh, where and the like, Flipper you would... Zero can't do that. Flipper Zero can't do the rule jam because it can't do the jamming aspect of it. But That's if somebody were to use their fob while away from their vehicle, so their vehicle just couldn't. So, you know, they're at dinner and they're playing with the fob in their pocket. They hit the button. The Flipper Zero could capture that oh, and I replay see what you're it. Saying. So it Sorry, could okay. still do so... an attack, but they can do the jam that actually kind of makes it practical. I guess I should have clarified. So, yeah, replay attacks do work on modern vehicles but not really in practical scenarios like you're saying yeah in that kind of case where you're not in range or whatever and you're able to capture it that way and then echo it back like yeah okay fair enough so but as you said pone, earlier though, in... um rolling pone is a little bit more practical for even the flipper to do because what it depends on is capturing two values and then when it replays the two values with these Honda vehicles that they found the bug with, and they do mention other vehicles would also do the same thing. When you replay the two values, it'll actually just cause it to be like, oh, we must be out of sync with the fob, and to resync based off of those two values and find where they were in the sequence and just resync. So basically, by replaying like your two values, you're able to get it to still open. So it's a slightly different attack in that you're not like reusing the code, or it's probably not really a replay attack, but you do replay them and then you're able to just get it back into you're basically have to force it to resync that's at least my understanding of rolling pwn i didn't dig super deep into this i just kind of i was looking it up ahead of the episode a bit yeah. but you would be you would in theory be able to do that with the flipper zero also okay so fair enough on that aspect then maybe i wasn't as correct because like something i was saying was that if you're well actually you know what i still hold to this is that if your vehicle can be stolen with just a flipper zero uh the security probably sucks on it and that's probably your problem not the flipper zero's problem well and here's the other um, thing it this is still just unlocking the vehicle not starting it not actually letting you run the vehicles which again it has been like a regulation in place since 2007 that you need to have the immobilizer new vehicles so yeah, like, you I mean, still even, need like, more like even where you have remote start like my car like it has remote start i can remotely start it although it's through an app it's not through a remote you can't get like secondhand market ones although that kind of voids like that's kind of out of scope i don't really want to factor that in but even in those cases when as soon as you open the vehicle to like as soon as you open the door to the vehicle the car shuts off again like you can't actually drive anywhere with a remote start you know what I mean? The car, the key has to be physically close to the engine for it to work because of the immobilizer that you're talking about. So, yeah, it's very like it's very much scapegoating uh, the Flipper Zero, and of course, you can make you can get the hardware and build something to do this as well. And in a lot of cases, I think that's probably what's happening anyway. They're probably not even using Flipper Zero; they're using you know custom made devices and where there's organized crime involved and there's so much value in cars. 
there's always going to be a market for those kinds of devices. So it's just, it's very misdirected. I feel like, like I said, I, I feel like they're scapegoating it here. And because of the way they have it worded, it sounds like maybe not only Flipper Zero, but like all SDR type devices could be impacted, which is quite relevant for security research, which is something you kind of commented on, on your, uh, that's the uh, thing that really concerns me is the fact that it's, if it were just Flipper Zero, like fine, I don't like that idea, but the Flipper Zero very much makes some of this sort of thing accessible. And again, I do not agree with the idea of banning it, but like, you know, because it's had that degree of popularity, I mean, whatever. But this, the way this is phrased as just copying wireless signals, sounds like they may very well end up introducing restrictions on basically any sort of radio research or wire wireless signal research in Canada because you're not allowed to have the tools necessary to do so. That that would be or that is kind of more my concern on this one. Is and it's just to get into your car. It'd be sort of similar to like banning baseball bats because you know you could bash in the car's window to get into it. So uh, a lot the, of vehicles you know, do have like where you don't have to insert the key anymore. Yeah, my vehicle's like that. I don't know how the attacks on that would work if there's still the wireless signals going on on that. I don't know the technology involved with doing so, any of that. I thought I, it was a Bluetooth a thing. Um, I can't remember what the exact technology is that implements it, but I can tell you this. Uh, just having the key close to the door or something is not going to be close enough to remote start it. It has to be like pretty much in the center console or in your pocket or something. You have to be inside of the vehicle for it to work. You so these people are able and, to and have it be authenticated. Like, so somebody using the keyless entry stuff, you know, they're able to get into the vehicle. I guess my question is, can they clone the signal to make it seem like the key is in the vehicle? Like, is that just a Bluetooth thing? Well, I don't know the technology involved there, but could you like spoof the vehicle inside the car? You know, make it make it repeat whatever it would repeat because of the vehicle. And I, I don't know, like I. I hope that they've kind of learned a little bit about the technology by this point and actually have some sense of security beyond like when wireless or sorry, when rolling code was kind of invented and then just kind of generally adopted. But I don't actually know if that's the case. So I would hope that they're using like some better crypto there. That they do like a challenge response with going with public key crypto. And so it can be intercepted, but without knowing like the challenge of vehicles going to issue, they can't really do anything. There are definitely ways that they could kind of secure that radio communication. I, Where we don't do just, the automotive research, it's hard to really say for sure that they do do that, though. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't know for sure what they're actually doing for that attack, like how they would attack that system or if they do. Because that's the other thing. We don't have statistics on, like, you know, are these things being used to steal vehicles or are they like largely stealing older vehicles i don't think that's the case but there are other options like i think we talked about okay no that was probably just unlocking it but i seem to remember one where like through the headlight they got access to the can bus and then we're yeah, just able to I, issue I the signals that way yeah like exploiting through the can bus or something is uh is a way that like i think there was actually an automotive researcher who had this happen to them i mean Bottom line is, like, a determined adversary is going to be able to get into it some way. They're going to go for whatever the weakest link is. 
but like banning SDRs like the Flipper Zero is not going to do anything. Uh, it's it's just like lip service, basically. Um, it's, I, I feel like it's just the government of Canada trying to score some free points, being like, hey, we're going to fix the auto thefts, everybody. Here's the solution. Uh, and yeah, no, I, like, I think not. we both very much agree this isn't a solution um, in any sense because it's it's just targeting the wrong thing, it feels like to me. Yeah, oh. and uh, it like you said, it's unfortunate that it can have impacts on security research, potentially. Now, one thing that we talked about a little bit before the show is we were trying to f- see if we could find more information on how that ban is going to be enforced. Because with the article that we have up here, basically, uh, it sounds like they're going to be regulatory restrictions. So they're going to make it so that it's difficult to buy on like legal marketplaces uh, and CBSA, the Canada Border Security Agency, they're going to enforce like checking for it at the border and stuff and not allowing it through the border. But when it comes to security research, how that's enforced will kind of matter. So I'll I'll let you get into it, Z, because one kind of comparison that you had was with uh, lockpicks, which I wasn't actually aware of sort of how these were treated legally. I, I wasn't even really aware they were regulated in Canada. So I'll let you get into that. So specifically, I think the regulation here is more around like the province themselves have, but in some places, basically like you're not supposed to import or purchase them or basically have them. So one, I'm also going to be very clear. I'm not like a lawyer here in Canada or anything. It's one area of the law. Like when I talk about copyright law, I have some like hands-on experience there and dealing with a lawyer on it. I don't have the same thing here, so I can't speak with i guess as much experience on it but um effectively it seems to be like uh the lock picks get associated more with a show of criminal intent so like you know just somebody a locksmith going from or having lock picks is no issue but if you're say detained in the area of another crime like somebody just broke into a home and you have lock picks that is now incriminating for you to have those lock picks uh kind of the context dependent aspect and so without basically having a reason to have them it then becomes incriminating towards you that's kind of my understanding of how lockpick laws and so in some areas it's restricted in some parts of canada some provinces it there is no question the reason why i have some familiarity is i believe here in saskatchewan it is somewhat restricted on you can get fined i believe just for having the lockpicks if you're you know caught with them out and stuff without having like any reason for it yeah so there is a bit of a difference there where it's like provincial versus federal and whatnot but yeah. if that is like something like the case that would happen with these it you were kind of saying like it would be less problematic because you know like legitimate security researchers doing radio research like they would have a legitimate reason to own these devices and import these devices yeah and not um, to be carrying them around but to have them at home and yeah i should have tied all that yeah. back in on like you know tying it into our actual topic which does come down to the fact like if it were that sort of restriction you know it's easy enough to get the lock picks and have them and if you have it at home you're doing your research you know for lock picks you know doing lock sport at home that's really not going to be an issue like you're not going to be arrested for doing that and because you're not taking them anywhere or anywhere without reason, like, you don't really have anything. So if the restriction on uh, the radio tooling was the same, I still don't like it. I still think it's kind of the wrong route. Like, 
Spectre mentioned, you know, just trying to score the points really so i get that but if it is just a straight up like you can't import this you can't get this and actively kind of criminalizing it then that's probably going to have a pretty big impact on security research within canada because of that it's just really annoying seeing security kind of scapegoated by governments over and over again because they don't want to deal with the actual root causes of problems I mean, uh, you know, if vehicles I, just I want... didn't use, like, the stupid rolling code system, which has been recognized as a problem for quite a long time. Like, it's not like any of, like, even when I talked about the rolling jam attack, like, it's not like that was a novel attack. It's just, say, you know, made it a bit more efficient. So the resync thing, that aspect, does seem a little bit interesting, does seem a bit novel, but... You know, these aren't really all that new security issues. It's just the same problems that they're just not taking security seriously. There are some questions when it comes to the statistics of vehicle thefts, because vehicle thefts now are significantly less than what they were in 2007. But there has still been a rise. Um, there has been the spike since 2020. It is kind of interesting how automotive has kind of shifted from being a physical world sort of threat model to more of a technological one because of how computer computerized vehicles have become, you know, at this point. That's become quite apparent with things like the chip shortage showed how much cars rely on technology nowadays. But yeah, I mean, those issues should be being addressed by the car manufacturers. Like things like Rolling Pone, you know, that should be something that the car manufacturers have to do. And maybe there should be some regulatory changes on the car manufacturers to have more secure uh, security on their vehicles and not uh, trying to hit, you know, flipper zero. <laughs> yeah. Although uh, you know, it's, in... it's kind of hitting the wrong side of the aisle. Yeah. Although in fairness, because vehicles last so long um, and some might laugh at that statement, but like that technology, like when a vehicle's on the road, it's going to be on the road for quite a while. You know, it's generally like, like it's... seven to 10 years. You're like that vehicle's still going to be driving, being driven yeah. around. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, easily. So, like, the tech change, if they made a tech change now, that we won't really see the impact of that for quite a while. Um, There'd be a lag, yeah. But ultimately, like, the tech, it's already out, like, Pandora's box has been opened when it comes to the technology. We understand that that's the attack, we understand how to do it. The specific tools aren't really going to change anything because you only really need that ability to send and receive radio like that isn't a big ask um yeah worst case scenario if the flipper zero is banned and you really want to do this you manufacture a custom pcb and then what are you going to do you're going to try to ban like radio like people buying radio components to solder onto boards like i don't think so yeah um, the uh screenshot i mentioned i pulled up here and you can just i was just bringing up to kind of show the spike here with 2020 um, how it was relatively stable, maybe a little bit of growth and decline, but like mostly stable here for the period on this is from 2013. Uh, there was more kind of going back yet another, like in the 10 years prior and into the 90s, which I think is where things peaked. But still, there has been this in increase through 2020, which, you know, is kind of why it's being talked about now and why well, it's uh, yeah. coming up. To be fair, I don't think that's really like an accessibility thing where it's just like people were having a harder time stealing cars before 2020. I think it's just because with the chip shortage and everything, the market for vehicles went insane. Uh, 
like price spikes on the, the whole market and that's why like vehicles have gone up so much in price and that's added the incentive to want to steal them so yeah part of why like, i bring it up is just the fact like yes there was a change in 2020 but it's actually still better now than it was in the past when they weren't doing much about it although actually now that i think about it um that could have been part of why we have the immobilizers now because that was introduced in 07 so adding a requirement on the manufacturers again to secure their stuff, I think would be great. Yeah, but our government doesn't like to do things that work. So, <laughs> you know, we'll see. But yeah, yeah so we'll have to see like a, we don't have all the information right now on exactly how this uh, ban is going to go into enforce. Um, I did actually check like today I was able to go on Amazon. There are Flipper Zero listings. You can't buy them directly from Amazon, but you are still able to buy them from third party sellers there that are like local. So, you know, it's not an effect like just yet, it doesn't seem. But yeah, if it is like a total ban, like you're saying, that's that's really like not a good sign. And it's unfortunate. If, yeah. if that's the way that it goes. That's the whole thing with this. Like this is a federal action on combating auto theft. So it sounds like at least the lawful we have right now is there is this intent to do these things. And they have a few things like enabling CBSA to do more about both the stolen vehicles and presumably also some of this. But I think they're mostly talking about the stolen vehicles themselves with, you know, the ability to intercept the stolen vehicles from CBSA. But they do talk about things like Justice Canada introducing amendments to the criminal code. There's a bunch of other stuff here, but it all comes across to me as an intent to do something and not a very specific. This is now banned or something like that. There's uh, a sliver of hope that things can change. I don't think they will. Uh, I have no reason to think they will based on, you know, the past. But it's, it is fair to point out that it's not set in stone yet, at least. But yeah, it's it's been shared around a lot. I'm sure a lot of people are aware of it. But uh, yeah, it's I wanted to rant on it a little bit because it, it is like kind of bullshit uh, if, we're, if we're being honest about it. Yeah, I've seen a lot of people really focusing in on the flipper zero aspect of this, which is fair. But I think, you know, the impact could be a lot wider and flipper zero feels like the least of my concerns because, yeah, I mean, flipper I zero doesn't do anything novel. It brings a bunch of things into a very small pack and it makes it like user friendly. Jumping back a little bit, I did want to mention that I did look up the Flipper Zero's price, kind of where you were talking about stuff with that, and it's it's $170, but the official retailer or official distributor in Canada, which is JoomGeek, Joom does not actually uh, list it anymore. If you go to their site, they say, we, we do not sell this product. This product is no longer available on our site. But yeah, like, like you said, the concern is that it might not just impact the Flipper Zero, it might impact you know, a variety of devices. So we'll have to keep a lookout on that. I guess if there's more information that comes out, maybe we'll cover it, um, depending on, you know, if that information is super relevant. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think we've had our rant being, on uh, it. Being scapegoated there. So, you know, yeah, we've had our rant. We'll move on. So, yeah, we'll get into some of our vulnerabilities for the episode. So up first, we have a post by Zscaler on an arbitrary file read, or leak, rather, in Jenkins uh, that could be used to leak credentials or sensitive file contents. The vuln ultimately is introduced via the use of args4j, which is a small but well-known Java library for parsing command line arguments. And one of the things it supports by default is the ability to prefix any arguments that are parsed by args4j with an at symbol to provide a file path to be read and the contents of that to be treated as the argument. And in some cases with the Jenkins CLI tool, 
you can pass in files that will get their contents disclosed through error messages because of course uh you know overly verbose error messages are back again and they note two ways that this capability could be abused to disclose file contents of arbitrary files the first is via the use of the jenkins cli tool directly uh, in a shell by using commands like enable job connect node and help whereas the yeah and the jenkins cli will complain about too many arguments and will echo those arguments into an error the other method is to send malicious post requests to the CLI endpoint for uploading and downloading. Now, exploiting these vulns, uh, like actually exploiting them, I think would require an attacker to be in a position to access the Jenkins CLI, which they state could be the case in particularly vulnerable configurations, like ones where registration is allowed to anyone that can access the instance. Um, they also call out the enable anonymous read permission option uh, as being something that could be like could add impact here. I'll be honest, I'm not totally sure on that aspect of it. I don't really use Jenkins, and I'm not familiar with its permission system to that degree. So, And they don't really clarify on that. So I figured I'd mention it because they do, but yeah, they don't really talk about how that ties into the exploit exactly. But bottom line is, you are going to need to be able to get arguments into the command line parsing for that to be viable, uh, which may or may not be practical in a lot of scenarios. But it is sort of an interesting attack, and Z had mentioned that this is something that's not exclusive to, like, uh, args4j or Jenkins. Yeah, like, and as you'd be able to that. guess, um, because args4j is just a li uh, kind of generic library for handling arguments, the at uh, prefix arguments is just a common thing. And that's more kind of what I want to call, because I don't think we've ever talked about it as an issue on the podcast, or possibly once with the curl thing. But curl is another program that does this, where having an argument value starts with the at will just indicate, like, read the file at this location and pop that in here as the value rather than uh, using this literal value. It's just something to keep in mind when it comes to doing test cases. It's definitely something I would often forget, but it can pop up in some of the strangest places. And it's just something that people easily forget even is a thing and sometimes may not even recognize it is a thing at all. When it comes to the permissions, like, yeah, there's definitely some questions over that because they talk about one of the permissions being that it grants universal read, allowing any Jenkins user to access and read the entire content of arbitrary files. So, like, why do you even need this bug if they just have permission to do it? So there are some questions on that front. But at the very least, you know, they do show the example here using the CLI with the help command, and it'll leak just two lines of it, the second line. Um, and then this here's the command execute vulnerable Jenkins is the first line of their demo file that they were using. And the file, even though you're so usually the way this will work with the at prefix argument is that it will read the file like on the machine where you entered that command. So it'd be used with like a command injection, argument injection sort of situation. In this case, Jenkins CLI ultimately like that jar is just going to be using the uh, CLI's endpoint um, and making these requests and then it's still getting processed on the remote side so kind of worth calling out because that I mean it's clear when you're looking at this but maybe through reading you might or sorry through listening you might not pick up on that distinction there but yeah the Jenkins jar communicates with the web server that then has the vulnerability that parses that and not kind of the Jenkins CLI itself reading it from your machine which would be uh, a little bit less useful of an attack if it's disclosing your files to the server. Yeah, that's a fair call, though. 
So yeah, uh, getting into our next topic that Z particularly liked, we have a post by Space Raccoon on a XSS and a clipboard API used by Microsoft Whiteboard and Excaladraw for Meta. So yeah, I'll let him get into it. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I always look forward to seeing something from Space Raccoon. So another post from them. And what they basically found here, you've guessed from the title, it's going from the clipboard and leading in, I guess the title doesn't call out the cross-site scripting, but they very quickly get into cross-site scripting here. So yeah, going from a clipboard event, like pasting specifically, or data coming from the user via the clipboard and ending up cross-site scripting. There's a lot of kind of generic talk here about hunting and discovering the issue and some of their own talk about their flow. Ultimately, what they end up finding here, though, was just a flow that goes from the clipboard into this render element to SVG, which will take, you know, if the element that it's seeing and this is coming from the clipboard and the clipboard serialized data, it's coming there, coming into this. If any of the elements in there contain a link, it'll create like an anchor tag where the link's value, attacker controlled, is set as the href property of an anchor or a tag. So you could set that over JavaScript when interacted with, like, click, it runs JavaScript. Seen that a million times. So you would be able to get that. Uh, they do kind of go into a bit of a discussion over how some of these things could be exploited. As like, you know, sometimes you do just require the user paste in, so you need that user interaction. They copy your data and paste it. They also call out how one of their Zoom bugs on the Zoom whiteboard. It just used the WebSocket to kind of send all of these things. So while the data may originally kind of get serialized coming from the clipboard, you could just send the WebSocket event itself or copy it from an actual instance of pasting the data. But you could just send the WebSocket message. So that way it's not like a self-excess. And then it also impacts uh, other people who are on that same socket or viewing that same whiteboard. In this case, they basically call, yeah, you need the user to paste this, but other websites could catch your attempt to copy the data and inject extra data. Therefore, it's still somewhat relevant. I don't know. I mean, this that sort of attack still kind of feels like a pretty heavy requirement where the user needs to paste something they copied specifically from you. And when they copy from you, you definitely don't know that they're going to paste it in to Excaladra, like you could put a payload in there just in case they do and it's then when they paste it elsewhere yeah it is something that bug bounties often will pay out on like it is an option it feels a bit of a reach to me unless somebody has some stats on people actually doing that yeah the fact that a website can change the contents can be damaging because we also talk about a very similar issue when it comes to pasting shell commands <laughs> like you know you paste into the shell there's all these extra commands with it um, so there are things that you can kind of assume might get pasted into a whiteboard. Just with shell commands, you kind of know where you need to do that with something that's getting pasted to a whiteboard. It feels a little bit more for us. You could definitely still like social engineer and be like, oh, you know, paste this into the whiteboard and it does something cool. Or, you know, paste this into your whiteboard for a chance to win $200 from Bill Gates. I don't know, but doing something like that, you know, I could see people still falling for it and it's still being an issue. So like, it is an issue. I don't want to deny that, but it definitely feels like a bit of an ask for these clipboard issues. Although the fact that like the call with the Zoom one where you could exploit this by using the WebSocket and not necessarily needing somebody to paste it in exactly is at least a fair shout out as like, basically there are other ways sometimes of hitting these syncs, even if the original source is just the user input something to at least consider as you're hunting 
And then they do call out a second bug, which I thought had at least an interesting aspect, which again is coming out from the source, like from the clipboard source. And one of the things they kind of talk about through all of this is how uh, the clipboard source data does get serialized in kind of a custom way. Like every website can decide how it wants to serialize this data and have something a little bit different. So that's kind of another place kind of considering bugs with and how the information gets passed along. Uh, but one of the things that they found was the Microsoft whiteboard had kind of support for your common objects that you would expect. Uh, and then they found a hidden object. So and share typical objects like shapes, images, and text. But upon review, they also found that it supported adding iframes onto the whiteboard. Presumably, they call out as case like dynamic content, like you want to include a YouTube video. Um, in particular, you know, the hyperlink object accepted an iframe property, which was the stringified serialized object literal for the iframe object type. And that iframe object type, couldn't set the source to be like a JavaScript URL. They would do some sanitizing there and they even call it, fortunately, Microsoft Whiteboard properly sanitized the source property. But one other property you could set was the sandbox property, which is kind of an aspect I like for this, where it's the sandbox that actually kind of allows the attack here. It's got um, some and, irony to it. Yeah. yeah, I always love seeing that. And the sandbox element, uh, if I can just find it here on MDN, Quickly. It sets restrictions on the content that's in the iframe for what it can do. You know, like allow download or allow download without user activation. That might not be widely supported. I see the experimental icon, but it has different things like, oh, this web, this sandbox, like the iframe is allowed to open models or open modal, sorry. It has a bunch of things here. And the one that they ended up using are kind of of being able to abuse was the allow top navigation where the iframe would then be able to access the top and then just change the location on top in order to redirect the user. So by including the iframe, getting the iframe included, they could redirect the user to like the JavaScript URL and get their access that way, which I think is just a great way of getting it Again, using the sandbox, using, using one of the permissive sandbox options for that it is definitely a fun way of getting this. But it does take kind of the user pasting this tag into the system, which again, slight bit of an ask, or bit of an ask, not necessarily slight, but still, I think it's a cool attack. I kind of like seeing that. And of course, they talk a little bit about CodeQL, which I always like to see in posts and, you know, lets me bump it up a little bit. So there's that too. Um, yeah, I like I, that aspect because they, they talk about their the original query that uh, someone they were collaborating with, with TechnoGeek and Nagley, that they had run and, you know, saying that, that the initial results didn't seem super promising at first because, you know, they weren't able to access that through the image source attributes. But that kind of tipped them off and got them thinking about some other queries that and areas they could look. And, you know, that's something to call out with CodeQL is CodeQL might not get you to the final answer or to like a vulnerability directly, but it, it can sort of help you with get, getting an idea of the system and some attack ideas too. Yeah, like I've always, I've always seen CodeQL, like writing queries is a bit complicated. It is not as easy as something like SEMGRIP. It's not as easy to integrate with. But CodeQL feels very nice for researcher in the loop looking at code. Not using it as the whole thing of finding all your vulnerabilities, but using it as your starting place to start learning and searching the code for 
beneficial areas. But we have talked about code. I guess it's been a little while since I've gotten on CodeQL, but uh, we've definitely talked about it through past things, and I'm a big fan of it. Yeah. Something from earlier, I do just want to say, I find it funny that you latched on to Bill Gates there for, like, your scam scenario. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I think like Elon Musk probably would have been the better one to go for there. That's what like been. all I... the scams use. But yeah, it, it would have been. I was I was even thinking, you know, because <laughs> they're talking about something meta things here that maybe um, going that route with Zuckerberg could have been. But yeah. I had to come up with something. I mean, Bill unfortunately, it shows one, my you know, age. With the uh, injections and stuff. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it shows my age in the days where people talk about Bill Gates doing whatever, giving you money. Um, yeah, yeah that, you don't really like see that anymore. Yeah, yeah it's, he's kind of faded out of the relevancy there for <laughs> scams. But yeah, it's kind of funny. He's just less generous these days. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, yeah, we'll get into our next topic here, which also kind of involves iframes. So this was a Medium post by uh, Alvaro Balada. And it's a server-side request forgery in an undisclosed application. It seems to be sort of like a Grafana sort of setup where it'll spin up dashboards with graphs and images and such on the fly with external data. It'll take some input dashboard as a JSON blob, create the dashboard, edit it with data, the data, and then export it to a PDF or a PNG file. And that exporting process is done through a headless browser. The problem was that in the dashboard JSON, you could include an item with this iframe object type, which, as you can imagine, creates an iframe, and you could pass an arbitrary URL into it, and it would render this iframe in the headless browser. So that gave them pretty straightforward ability to execute code in the headless browser. The way they were able to abuse that here well, was the to... the iframe itself was SSRF. Like, the fact that the headless browser was making the request to the attacker's To the website. URL. Yeah. Yeah, that was that and that was also restricted they couldn't use internal addresses on that yeah so it wasn't just arbitrary urls they could only use external addresses for where the iframe would be loaded to yeah but uh, yeah so they were able to use uh, the iframe in order to send requests to services running on localhost including this json endpoint running a petition api uh, sorry, running on the petition API, which would okay, dump all the um, browser. Sorry, I'm going so to Jason... jump in here because you missed a very important step in all of this. Uh, the okay, iframe itself uh, could not be used to scan the local host. Couldn't be used to make those requests. Where they got those requests was by having an iframe inside of their iframe itself. So they would iframe the attacker website and then they would iframe localhost. So one of the requirements was that the pages had to be like HTTPS, so like localhost is an HTTP URL. Generally, you're not having a certificate on localhost. Uh, so what they were able to do was include an iframe inside of their iframe on like their attacker website would then iframe the other website and they would be able to get the screenshot or the view of that, uh, like the dashboard thing of that in the PDF. But yeah, it's that iframe inside of iframe is how they were able to get the random website. It wasn't just this one alone. This one alone had the protection, then they bypassed that using the second iframe. Yeah, sorry, that's kind of what I was trying to say earlier, but you, yeah, you were able to clarify it better than I could. Okay, um, I think I missed that you. iframe inside of, yeah, like using the contents of the iframe in order to do the other iframe to go to localhost. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, they're able to use that to hit the, the petition API, and this JSON endpoint would dump all the active browser tabs in JSON, which included user se session tokens. So, 
yeah, that was pretty nice. Netted them a 2,000 euro bounty. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's pretty straightforward and stupid, you know, just allowing iframes to be passed in as an item in the dashboard. But, but it sometimes it is. For some just... cases, you want that remote data loaded. And then they did try to prevent prevent people from accessing like local hosts and such. They just didn't do so sufficiently. Yeah. But yeah, like I said, it's a, it's another topic involving iframes and, you know, whenever you see stuff involving iframes, it's, it's something that like, I remember we used to have a ton of topics about and it was really popular. And then it seems like iframes were mitigated pretty well for a while. And so we didn't see them for a little while, at least on the show, or maybe we just didn't include them as topics, you know, it might just be a, a bias there, but, um, I just yeah, haven't I mean, seen as many. Yeah, that's what I think it is too. Um, I will say it is a little bit interesting that like they had this endpoint that just listed like everybody connected to browser instant to a headless browser instance and like had all the sensitive information in there. That is kind of wild. Yeah. Like I, I get that this is for like a developer who wants to troubleshoot something so they can like, you know, connect in here because one thing it does include is like the dev tools inspector. So that is where, like, you could basically pull up, like, a remote version of your web console and, like, access things as though you were on that browser, even when you're not. Um, so, like, it's a very clearly a development thing. But still, I mean, it's still just interesting that they have it. But, yeah, it's probably there for, like, internal development tooling. Um, as a defense in depth, it, it should be disabled on production. Yeah. Disabled or behind auth? You know, log in or specifically that, yeah. on local hosts, and then you can access these endpoints, not just widely available, just because it is always at risk best SRF. And it is kind of another thing to remember, like with SRF, you can do this sort of scanning. I imagine most people are kind of aware of the fact that you can do network scanning with an SSRF, but worth calling out. It's definitely a good find. And I do just kind of like the just embed your iframe in your iframe and get around the iframe restrictions. Like, just the level to which they're applying their security is a little bit lacking. But it is slightly, like, one way you'd be able to resolve this would be by making sure they're running in, like, their own network so localhost doesn't access the host machine anymore. But then you kind of lose out on having them on the network so you can do the debugging work with it. Another option would be, like, a browser extension that would enforce the security, which feels like it might be a decent way of doing it if you need to keep it on the same network there but it is kind of a challenging thing to try and prevent just arbitrary because you if you want to keep the arbitrary website and do they talk about how they patch us at all i don't i don't think so yeah i don't recall if they do i don't see anything about it because somebody's probably yeah, thinking like oh they just need to do something like... really stupid and i'm just not thinking about what that is but or like something really simple but yeah i mean it doesn't seem like it would be the most straightforward thing to resolve when you want to be able to do this and to kind of resolve recursively where you want to support like the iframes and the frames and all of that because you know that can definitely happen with a legitimate website that you'd want to have on like your dashboard so we were saying earlier that iframes is not something that we've come across a lot lately, but something that uh, we have come across lately is ChatGPT. So we have a topic around that. Um, this was a quite interesting volume that was covered in ChatGPT last year, uh, web cache deception volume. 
uh, in ChatGPT share functionality for sharing chat history with others. Something that I haven't seen people use a ton, but I've used it sometimes myself, actually, just for caching links, no pun intended. So, yeah, one thing they noticed was that shared links wouldn't update as the chat continued. So they assumed that there was some sort of caching going on here, and as it turned out, they did some tests, and anything under the share path was getting cached. So this was sort of a light bulb to try to see, can you do, you know, like cache poisoning and tax? Um... And so, yeah, they talk a little bit about the setup here. So they state that the CDN is being used here, Cloudflare, for the caching. And there's a bit of a differential issue that contributes to this problem. So uh, ultimately, those who can see the stream can look at the URL and see something pretty strange. And that's that after the share path, they have %2f dot dot %2f API slash auth session token. So basically what they're doing there is a path traversal, right? They're they're traversing out of the share path into the API auth session path. And you're kind of thinking like, okay, what does that have to do with the caching? Well, the problem is that the CDN doesn't actually decode or normalize that path. It just treats it as the regular path. And so because it's under the share directory, that's considered cacheable, it's fine. Um, but when the web server gets that request on the back end, it will decode and normalize that string and it will respond with the API auth session endpoint, which contains an auth token. So because of that differential, you're able to uh, basically send like a poisoned link to a victim, which includes the, the share URL with the payload that breaks out to go to the auth session endpoint. And then when an attacker visits that same URL later on, they'll be able to see the cache token and get access to that access token and compromise the account, get access to all the chats and the billing information and whatnot that's associated with it. So quite an interesting attack. Uh, it's fun to talk about cache stuff when we get a chance to. It's not always the most intuitive to understand, and it's kind of an easy problem to make. And this sort of scenario is kind of an interesting one because it, it's a differential, right? You have two different behaviors, and it's hard to really pin blame on one particular party here it's a difference of interpretation on how to deal with that url right back in server so. all the blame back end um, <laughs> it, it does kind of come down to a question of like what the behavior should be and something i didn't know so i looked into the http spec just to see like are you allowed to do the url encoding here for us you are it does allow percent encoding as part of the path but it does feel incorrect to me that the percent encoding will then also result in a changing paths i would imagine that like and this is maybe a little bit weird because like the path shouldn't have a slash and slash is the differentiator but you know to perform like the url decoding after it's already re resolved the path like to say this is where it's going but i don't know it also feels like you kind of need to do something url decoding to get the path if like auth was all percent encoded you'd probably still want to go to the auth path but not with the dot dot slash in there. You don't want going out, but I don't know. So I don't think the spec is clear over how that should get normalized, but it is clear that the URL path can include that. So the normalization should happen after path is determined or like it should be decoded after the path gets determined, which is why I kind of want to put the blame towards the backend server here for changing the path that's resolved based on the fact that the encoded characters were present. That's kind of my feeling. And in talking with these cachings, like oftentimes what we find with them is you just figure out what it's being keyed on and figure out if you can make a request that 
you know, has a header that it's keyed on, but doesn't actually change things or, or a header that impacts the site that isn't keyed on. So it doesn't host header, for example, like it'll, maybe it's only looking at the URL and you change the host header and that changes the page content, but it doesn't actually change like the caching. The cache will still happen based on the domain that was actually requested. The, the URL coming in will still kind of be have an influence there, not necessarily the host header itself until the host header is seen on the host who then does maybe other work. So you end up having the caching like that's oftentimes what I see with the caching issue. So I just don't bring it up a lot because it tends to be the same sort of issue every time. But this one is definitely unique and it is a cool find with the URL decoding leading to like the path traversal that creates it. I haven't really seen that before. Obviously, we've talked about path traversals and like there have been issues there before, but in conjunction with the caching, it feels a little bit novel to me. Maybe somebody else has done it and I just didn't see, but I wanted to call it out because that felt like a, a novel thing to keep in mind. The scenario is quite interesting too, because where you're dealing with share links, like it is more likely that someone would clink, uh, click on a share link, especially like it, it feels very easy to work into like a phishing thing. And then also it's subverting where you're getting, instead of getting access to one chat history that was supposed to be shared, you're getting access to all of them. So it's quite cool on how the impact works too. Yeah, although one thing of note, I guess, on that aspect is when somebody does click that link, they're going to see something that very much isn't a chat. And it is going to at least raise some suspicions to maybe, like, log out, change your password sort of deal, or maybe not. Like, I think a lot of people might just ignore it, forget why they opened the link, something like that. But, like, it is also kind of... Yeah. Getting into some research, we do have something that uh, Z had noticed here, which is uh, differential testing and fuzzing of HTTP servers and proxies. So we have the, the GitHub repo up here with the code for running the HTTP servers and proxies and whatnot, though this does accompany a talk, which I believe uh, Z has checked out, and I'll, I'll let him talk about that. Yeah, this was from a talk at ShmooCon, and actually, if you're going from the title of the post being the differential testing and fuzzing of HTTP servers, that might actually sound familiar to a topic we covered a couple years ago, which was T-Rex, which was another HTTP fuzzer focused on differential fuzzing for request smuggling. What is this about differential testing for, well, they end up using it for request smuggling, and so... It just reminded me a lot of that paper. It is one of my favorite papers in recent years, just to see people approaching request smuggling from more than just like the content length area, but actually looking at other issues that can happen. What they ended up finding, I just need to find my way back to the GitHub page. Uh, what the talk went into the talk, they apparently found a bunch of these bugs, but they talked about a couple with like content length. Uh, they found this, I think it was Light Server that did this, that supported Octal encoding. For the, well, it didn't explicitly support it. The C function that they were calling would attempt to figure out what the encoding of the number was. So when they gave like 010, that would be encoded as like, you know, anything reading it as decimal would get 10, which is what it should be. But because it also accepted octal, their system would read it as being 8 bytes. So you get that content length discrepancy where you can create a request smuggling attack out of that. And basically, this whole thing was leading up to them talking about this HTTP garden, 
which is just like their system for doing this sort of fuzzing. Effectively, the way that their fuzzing would work was to look for differentials between all the different HTTP servers, but they would take basically one for your reverse proxies. They'd have their input. Input would be run to the reverse proxy. Reverse proxy would forward it to just a plain echo server that would give them, here's what the request looked like to me sort of deal back. And then they would take that request back and they would forward that off to all the different HTTP servers that they supported. So you can basically test against all these different setups, set up your proxy, set up your target server and see where you can get differences from. And all of those HTTP servers would be set up to respond with how they interpret the request, what the requests look like, data, the actual body data of the request and all of that information come back. And so they basically were able to create this fuzzing loop of being able to send the same request off to everything, make sure they're getting the same response back or testing for that differential and knowing there was a bug here on one of them, like something's not behaving right. And then they combined that with just an input generator, gave it a grammar, grammar-based fuzzing, giving it just HTTP grammar so it can generate HTTP. I think they did 1.1. I've just been one. No, it must have been 1.1. HTTP 1.1 request. And so they could just have a long-running fuzzing campaign on finding differential issues between all of these different servers. So T-Rex, when we talked about that, did a similar thing with fuzzing over like the entirety of the HTTP grammar. But with far fewer servers, they focused more on like the cloud servers that were available on different deployment systems like that, whereas this is more like the ones that you can run, run locally. But they have so many more servers. They're basically taking it further. have found some really cool bugs out of it. Presentation was pretty solid, gave a lot of background, kind of explained the issues, and then had their couple fun bugs before they got into talking about what they've released here. But yeah, I just, I think there's so much more that can happen with the confusions beyond what we've really seen with request smuggling. So it is always exciting to see more research coming out there. I've said many times, I feel like T-Rex is kind of underlooked at or underappreciated, but they definitely, while I don't think they had any relationship to T-Rex or any inspiration from them, there are definitely some similarities on the ideas between that and this talk. Uh, so yeah, they have the link here to the SmooCon, uh 2024 talk, which is basically to the entire like day's presentation of like all the presentation that just has the time offset to like two hours and 19 minutes in there. So I'll get a link included in the show notes for that. But uh, yeah, it, it, it was a good presentation. I, I kind of enjoyed it and thought there was good information in there. So worth checking out beyond just the tooling, but I do like the fact that the tooling, you know, is available and somebody's kind of running on this idea a little bit more. All right. Sorry, I didn't realize I was muted there. <laughs> so yeah, we also have a medium post on the hunting for vulnerabilities that are ignored by most of the bug bounty researchers. I know from your prep stream, Z, that you sort of disagree with the title here, but I'll let you get into that. Kind of, sort of. I don't entirely agree with everything. So the main one that I kind of have a disagreement with is when they talk about delimiter injection, which was the third vulnerability. Just the idea that you have a website it has some sort of file or some sort of clear delimiter that you can know about. They have the example here where it's just using a pipe between different things. I just feel like that is something people test for or should be testing for at least, or I hope people are testing for, because any of these cases where you have data mixed with control information is a, possi is a possible location for that sort of data versus control confusion, aka injection attacks, XSS, cross-site like cross scripting, SQL injection, 
LDAP injection, whatever. It's always that same sort of issue where it's confusing your data for control. So these really simple serializations where it's just a, like in this example, a pipe character being used to delineate things are just a good place to look for those sorts of issues because you can often, especially if it looks like it's something bespoke where they just created this serialization. It's not like, you know, an actual serialization. It's just a really good place to look for bugs, but I feel like most people recognize that already. Maybe I'm just overestimating what people are thinking about or because I thought about it a lot, other people are. I obviously don't know inside what everybody's looking for. That's just the one that stood out to me. It's like, eh, I feel like most people kind of recognize injection and hack possibilities. The rest of these, though, are maybe a little less. So vulnerability one, cross-site script inclusion, is maybe a bug class that has maybe been forgotten about a little bit. It just comes down to the idea that, sure, with same origin policy uh, or, and cross-origin policy stuff, like, most people are aware that you can't just simply make a from an XSS or whatever, you can't just make a request to a remote website or across origins. Can't just do like a fetch to another origin, get the website or something. But when you do a script inclusion, so script source equals whatever remote website, you can, and some websites are designed to take advantage of this, uh, like with doing JSONP, where you can, if that website were to set any JavaScript variables in that JavaScript, you would be able to access those variables from your own Website. So every so often you'll find a website that's using like a, a JavaScript file as like their control system. So how they're writing uh, configuration, not control, configuration files. They're using JavaScript as the config language and they'll just include their config file. But your website can also include that config file and dump all the information in there. Sometimes that'll include user information. This is seen with APIs. The JSONP APIs will take a little callback parameter and then they'll call whatever data the API is returning. They'll call like that data as the argument to whatever function you give it. So you can like just spoof that and give it a function, create that function to receive the callback. When you include the script file, that's a bit more of an obvious case, but yeah, just generally being able to include these files, you can sometimes leak useful information out of it. Sometimes not, not every site's going to do like dynamic JS. So it's less useful, but it is something to keep an eye out for. And it does seem like it's kind of an older issue that maybe people are less familiar with. Similar on the older side, they call this cross-site or cross-user defacement on vulnerability two. It's response splitting, and they do call it out due to HTTP response splitting. Most libraries are dealing with this already. This is a pretty old attack that it seems like most libraries are already dealing with. They just won't let you have a header or with the value or even the name that has the new line characters inside. Just, nope, we're not allowing this. Most things prevent this already. When they don't, you can potentially include new lines, which then means you can either add arbitrary headers or you can do two new lines giving that blank line, which will trigger the start of the content of the page, which then means you can include like your own JavaScript in that page. And thus that's where the defacing comes in. I don't know. I mean, there is a sense of that being an older attack that is less commonly seen, so perhaps less commonly hunted for. Still worth, I think, giving it like giving it a test when you see something that might happen. But like I said, it is less common. Like I've, I used to hunt for that when I was doing the consulting work, and I think I came across it twice. Uh, like it wasn't something you'd commonly see, and that you know was several years ago. I hope just things have gotten better more and more libraries just prevented. And so 
yeah, your your chances of hitting it do feel kind of low, but it's also a very easy test case. But yeah, worth calling out there. Vulnerability 3, delimiter injection, we already talked about. And vulnerability 4, the SMTP header injection. Again, feels like something that's at least known about, but maybe not thought about all of these situations where you might get access. But similar idea, getting new lines injected, but specifically some that's using the SMTP headers, like your subject. So you can, you know, turn a email being sent out, maybe add some extra HTML, change the content type so it is HTML, something like that. Perhaps leaking information by having to load an image, presuming it gets loaded with images and all that, but you can sometimes leak information that way. There are some fun attacks that you can do with SMTP header injection. Yeah, I don't know where I stand on that one, whether or not it's really well known or tested for, but... The main one I had was just the delimiter injection as being, uh, that feels like something that should be tested for. And the last vulnerability on here, vulnerability five, overly restrictive account lockout. Someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think a lot of programs just don't really accept this one. So the idea of this bug is where basically if a account lockout system, say you make like 50 attempts on somebody's password and then locks their account. If that account lockout is not specific to like your IP, but is that account can no longer log in without doing some extra work, you've now just kind of gotten to dial service against that attack or against that user. Um, and I think a lot of places where they do this, it's just an accepted risk. Like they are okay with the fact this locks out user because they care more about preventing the brute force. And then a lot of places won't lock out the user because they care more about the usability. It's a trade-off, and I feel like a lot of places just, you know, kind of treat this as the denial of service, and that's just out of scope in general. Maybe people have had some luck hunting with it or just reporting it regardless, but I always thought this was kind of one of those attacks that wasn't really included in scope, but maybe that's just my misinterpretation of scope. It's definitely one of those things that I used to write up, though, kind of feeling like, eh, I don't really want to write this up, like, I don't think it's that important. But it's one of those I'm things you put consulting. on the report for sake of completeness. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you let them know here are your options with it. Here's why this is bad. Here's maybe what you can consider and give them the information to make that choice themselves. I actually think this is something uh, Port Swigger had a call out of like, uh, I forget what they titled it, but I feel like they had a post that talked about several different types of reports that like you know kind of shaming some of the reports and i pr i'm pretty sure this was one of them that was actually on there either way like that lockout thing is one of those reports that i've definitely written it a bunch of times like you know it's worth letting people know and worth letting companies know like hey this is something to consider but so many places have considered it and like they do that intentionally and like have made that choice and yeah, I thought this was also something that a lot of programs would consider a uh, like denial of service and just not include it. Either way, like I thought this was a good post. There were the few kind of nitpicks I can make about, hey, maybe this is already looked for. Like, I don't think it's actually ignored by most. But at the same time, I don't do the bug bounty hunting. I've said that many times. Like, my experience comes more on the consulting side. Uh, so. I, maybe I'm just out of the loop on that. I think it's still a good post for bugs that are worth looking at in general. Because uh, the one that I was even kind of bringing up as like a counterpoint, 
I absolutely think you should be hunting. So if you're not hunting for these, they're easy enough to add into your routine. Only one I wouldn't necessarily care much about is the overly restrictive. Just make sure that's within scope. Make sure they care about knowing that. Yeah, and the vulnerabilities that are covered here kind of fall into that category of older vulnerabilities that have sort of been forgotten about and have been handled for the most part. And because of that, they can crop back up. So, you know, things coming back into relevancy sort of thing. Uh, yeah, which that's is fair. Which nice to think about. Fair to point out. Yeah. So we do have one shout out in this episode. As I said earlier, we've talked about like ChatGPT and LLMs quite a bit lately. This NCC group post is about analyzing LLM application prep models. So uh, Z mentions a shout out. I'll let him talk about it and then we'll wrap up the show. Yeah, and I'll be honest, when I saw this, I was really hoping this was the AI producing application threat models that they were going to be reviewing. Unfortunately, it's not. It is more about the threat model of using AI, having the inferences there, and all of that. So it's kind of a continuation with other things we've shouted out. I figure we've done other content of similar nature when it comes to LM. so I would just kind of add on there with another look at the threat model uh, being enforced there. Although I would really like to see a... AI that produces a good threat model. I just would like to see that, but unfortunately, this isn't that. Haven't reached that milestone yet. No, and I don't. I do not expect an LLM to make a good threat model. It might be do some other things, but I wouldn't expect it to do a threat model very well. Yeah, I wouldn't trust it to do it very well. I'm sure it could think it could do it very well. But, it could generate yeah. the right words. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that would be cool to see one day. But yeah, this is more on the yeah the defensive side of using LLM, LLMs, which we've talked about before as being sort of difficult to deal with. So if you're into LLMs and whatnot, this post is probably worth checking out. And uh, NCC Group is generally like pretty solid in their posts, so wanted to give it a shout out. Yeah. All right, so that's all the topics we have for today. So thanks, everyone, who tuned in. I know this is a bit of a longer episode. Previous episodes can be found on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Feel free to join the community by joining our Discord and Twitter links, which are down below in the description. And we'll see you in the next one.